Ave, and welcome to When in Rome. And now, here's the music. When in Rome is a podcast about place and space in the Roman Empire. This is episode LXXV, Aurelian Walls. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Associate Professor Caitlin Davenport, Head of the Centre for Classical Studies at the Australian National University. No Roman structure says crisis of the 3rd century more than the Aurelian Walls. The city of Rome had long been at peace and largely untouchable, but Aurelian realised that times had changed and the capital of the empire needed defending. Here's Caelan Davenport. So Aurelian is reigning in the late 3rd century CE, so he ruled between 270 and 275. He was a soldier um, who rose up through the ranks to become an officer, a cavalry commander, and then was acclaimed emperor by the troops. Now, construction, or at least planning, for the Aurelian Walls began in 271. And the reason for this is there had been some serious incursions by Germanic tribes into Italy during this year. They besieged towns in North Italy around Milan, and the people of Rome feared that they would make it all the way down to the Eternal City. Now, in the end, Aurelian was able to defeat this particular Germanic tribe, the Uthungi, and chase them out of Italy. But still, the fear remained within Rome that the city could be sacked, uh, something that hadn't happened since uh, the Gauls in 390 BC. And this fear had actually led to revolts within the city. And so Aurelian was concerned to reassure the population as well as to prevent any further revolts against his rule. And so this is a period of time as well when there's a fractured Roman Empire. It's it's broken into three parts at this point and the territory of Rome has shrunk and the imperial army is is crisscrossing the empire, dealing with one incursion after the other, it seems, or there's challenges to the imperial authority. And Rome is less of a concern and cannot always be protected. That's completely right. So the provinces of Spain, Gaul and Britain are controlled by a breakaway so-called Gallic Empire and the eastern provinces are under control of the Palmyrene queen Zenobia and her son. So Aurelian is really only the emperor uh, for the central part of the empire. The boot. He's got the boot. He's got the boot. He's got (laughs) Italy. He's got North Africa. He has uh, the Balkans and Greece. And so, yes, no, he, he can't sit around in Rome enjoying life there. He has to be out on the frontiers defending uh, the empire's borders, particularly the Danubian front. But he also needs to try and reunite the empire to bring back uh, Gaul and Britain um, and Syria and the east into the fold. And while doing so, he needs to reassure the population of Rome that he's still looking out for them as well. Has there been a particular incident that has provoked this wall to need to be built now? 
Yes, so there have been two attempts by barbarian tribes to make their way into the centre of Italy. Firstly, in the reign of the Emperor Gallienus, who ruled between 260 and 268, and then in 271, during the reign of Aurelian himself. And one of the reasons for the construction of the walls, we're told by Aurelius Victor, who is a historian writing in the 4th century, is that Aurelian didn't want the people of Rome to worry that such an event would happen again. Okay, and in terms of the geography of of Rome, the city itself, it had been a city that for a long time had uh, grown wealthy and fat. (laughs) Yes. It it had little to worry about uh, challenging it directly. Mm. It's to the point where any previous walls, which at that point were hundreds of years old, Mm. no longer contain the glut of the city. I'm going to talk about it in those terms, but I think it's accurate. Yes. So uh, Rome has outgrown its original city walls. So these are called the Servian walls. And they named that because they were traditionally ascribed to the king, Servius Tullius, but they're actually Republican. They're actually early republics, about 4th century BC. And you can see some of these walls still today. For example, um, outside Termini, on the main train station in Rome, you can see parts the Servian walls, and also in the McDonald's inside the Termini train station, the part of the Servian walls are there as well. Okay. So you can get your Big Mac and fries and look at some, some history as well. But yes, these walls only now encircle the centre of the city, the traditional pomerium, that is the traditional sacred boundary of Rome, and they run around the Capitoline, the the Palatine, the Aventine, and all the seven hills of Rome. But Rome has now vastly expanded beyond those original boundaries. So large parts of the city, particularly the Campus Martius in the northwest, areas across the Tiber and areas to the uh, southeast, like with the Baths of Caracalla are, they all lie outside the city walls. So if Rome is attacked again, they basically have no defences. What do we know then or what can we think about the intentions of building this wall then? I gather that they would be extensive, that they would cover as much of the perimeter of Rome as possible, Mm. that they would be cheap and that they would be built quite quickly. Yes, so Aurelian starts the planning in 271 uh, before he leaves Rome for another campaign in the Balkans. They're not completed, though, until the reign of his successor Probus. He reigns from 276 to 282. And it's probably that they marked out the route with stakes and rope at the very beginning. The route is almost 19 kilometres in length, whereas the previous Servian walls had only been nine kilometres. And so they run around virtually all of the 14 Augustan regions of the city, including uh, what is now modern-day Trastevere across the Tiber. And they also take in quite a few pre-existing landmarks. So the Praetorian Guard camp in the northeast of the city, the outside wall of that is incorporated into it. The Sasaurian Palace, which lies to the east, which was used by the Severans, has an amphitheatre, and that is incorporated into the walls as well. Okay. And the Pyramid of Gaius Cestius, the tomb that the shape of a pyramid from the Augustan period, that's built into the walls as well. That's an odd one. Yeah. Yes. So it's very interesting in terms of the route. So if the state, uh, Aurelian's government, needed to resume private land, they would have to pay for it. So they couldn't just knock down 
people's houses without permission. Mm. So what they did is there's a clear effort in the route to go through property, so estates that were owned by the emperors already. And we know this, for example, where the Lateran Church is today. That takes its name from a house of Lateranus, which became imperial property under Nero. And we know the wall cuts through the house of Lateranus because it was cheaper and better for them to destroy imperial property rather than to buy up and resume houses. Yeah. So that does dictate a lot of the route. And, for example, in some places like in the northwest where there's the Aqua Claudia and the Anio Novus to aqueducts, the wall actually integrates um, alongside the aqueducts there as well. Okay. So you don't want to destroy, you know, really important uh, infrastructure. So the army would be the most experienced people to make the structure of a mm. wall because they're building the walls of forts, there's mm. fortified cities, more associated with the frontier kind of settlements. Yeah. But in this era, I imagine that the army can't be spared for this kind of vast scale. No, you're going to have urban cohorts resident in Rome. A lot of the Praetorians would be out with Aurelian these days on the campaigns. So you can have the urban cohort supervised, but you're going to need the people of Rome really to be building. And that's actually okay because a large proportion of the free population of the city of Rome were day labourers and they needed work. And this is why imperial building projects were so great because they provided them with essentially food to to feed their families. And also since this comes in the aftermath of riots in Rome. It's a good way to keep people occupied. So Hendrik Day has estimated that probably about 10% of the male population of Rome was involved in this building. And certainly we see the city guilds that are, are brought in to participate in the building as well. They're given the names Aureliani, so Aurelians guilds, in order to honour their contribution. So you really see sort of everyone's pulling together to uh, build this new fortification. Is that like how the guy who put toilets in Buckingham Palace gets to put the Queen's seal on his toilets after that? I did not know that. That does sound a... um, It's like like a Victorian kind of thing. Really? Okay. The seal of the Queen. These are the royal loos. Oh, okay. I I, I didn't know that. But yes. The same kind of... It It is. It's Aurelians. It's like by royal warrant. You go to Harrods by appointment to the Queen and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Queen shop's here. Yes. I didn't know about the toilet story though, so I have to add that to my, uh, my repertoire. We've got this wall that needs to be 19 kilometres long that is built uh, incorporating some existing structures. But what do we know then about, I gather quite a lot because there's bits of the wall still there, about the construction of the wall and how it was designed Mm. to repel an enemy? Yes, so we have lots of information because scholars, archaeologists, really for you know, well over a century now, have been doing really detailed study of the wall and its different phases. So you can see it uh, throughout Rome today. You know, most of it is is still there. I myself have walked around a large proportion of of the wall. You know, on a uh, a long day when I was fitter and more active. So you know, it it really is a way to engage with Rome and its history. Uh, So, you know, these archaeologists have shown there's a solid core of tufa, and that's uh, light stone, which is found in Rome's surroundings. And then it's held together in a cement of lime and pozzolana sand, which comes from Campania, that's near Naples. 
That's the inside. And then inside and out, they were faced with brick tiles, often broken into pieces set in mortar. Now, where these tiles have come from is a matter of scholarly controversy. Um, Until relatively recently, it was thought that they were mainly reused second century bricks. And this is because none of them have Aurelian's name on them. Okay. And, you know, some of them do have the names of brickworks that were functioning in the second century. However, Hendrix Day, in his study of the Aurelian Wall, suggests that there wouldn't have been sufficient pre-existing bricks to be used, and it wasn't consistent practice for emperors to put their name on bricks at this stage. So his study has shown there were also new bricks that were fired at brickworks to the north of Rome. So there's clearly a production process going on there, as well as the movement of the materials from different places in Italy. And as far as being a formidable defence, how substantial was the wall? Well, the original walls weren't as high as they stand today. They were about seven to eight metres high and about 3.5 metres thick. So no solid walls, but they were increased uh, in height later. Towers were inserted into the length about every 100 Roman feet, so that's about 30 metres, and there's 381 of those in total. And then they rise uh, about 4.5 metres above the height of the parapet. There are stairways through the towers to the parapets. There were four main double gates leading in and out of the wall. These had two arches, one for inbound, one for outbound Mm. traffic. The Via Flaminia to the north, Via Appia to the south, and then on the roads either side of the river, the uh, Via Ostiensis and the Via Portuensis. These you can still see today. The Flaminia one, you know, it gives you access to the piazza. I mean, as you come down from the Villa Borghese Gardens, you can, you can see the archways there, the Via Appia gates. You can uh, walk down to the tomb line roads, which lead out of Rome. Yeah. Um, you know, you can see traffic going in and out of them. So it's really part of the fabric of Rome today. In addition to these main gates with the twin arches, there were 16 other gates and then 29 sort of smaller entrances. So smaller oh, okay, so gates. like it accommodated the uh, the geography of the city now, it also accommodated the existing roadways and everything. That's right, that's right. That was really important that, you know, although it was defence, it didn't sort of lock people in. Could you imagine the traffic jam if it was just those four gates? Oh, yes, it <laughs> would, would have been awful, even in, even in antiquity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And was it the sort of wall that you could, if you climbed it, walk around the entire perimeter of it? Yes, you could in antiquity. So the idea was that all areas could be defended. I think there's only one main part now Mm. that you can actually go up and walk the parapets, and that's at the um, Museum of the Wall. We'll come to that. So how was the wall intended to be defended? Yes. So there were crenellations, the battlements, you know, which you could, you know, fire down arrows or or, or spears from above. And the idea was that, you know, you you could keep the um, enemy at bay that way by having the the tactical advantage. So how about the riverbank then? How do you Mm. account for the Tiber when you're building a wall around a city? The riversides were fortified as well. So there's a lower wall and lower towers alongside the 
riverbanks and the bridges were also incorporated into the network as well. Certainly that was a a weak point that if you sailed up the Tiber, that was uh, one place you could break through the walls, but there there were fortifications there so troops could be stationed to minimise that. Okay, so 19 kilometres is quite a circumference to Mm. defend. Mm. So how did it work practically? I mean, you're not going to get an enemy attacking from all directions Mm. and Mm. and you can focus your defence, but how often was the wall needed for defence? Yes, so the wall actually wasn't needed until the reign of the Emperor Maxentius. Uh, So he ruled in Rome between 306 and 312. And so he was an emperor that controlled really only Italy and North Africa. And so there were other emperors who tried to recover Italy uh, from him, including Constantine. We think that Maxentius did heighten the walls, probably about 1.2 metres, and added a vallum, a ditch. So not quite a moat, but at least a ditch there. And it seems that attacking armies generally avoided pitch battles at the walls. A lot of the battles that took place were outside Rome in Italy. But Maxentius did himself make a tactical mistake in 312 when Constantine was advancing onto the city. Maxentius actually left the walls and marched north up the Via Flaminia to the Milvian Bridge where he was defeated by Constantine. Mm. So usually when there is a sack of Rome in late antiquity, there are stories of sieges that actually last for a long time and then there's sometimes uh, stories of betrayal behind the scenes people actually let in through part of the walls yeah okay so I, i guess in that way they achieved what they set out to if they're that intimidating that the fighting took place elsewhere in rome yes yes or in italy itself yeah so the major modifications that brought the wall up to the height that we see today took place in the early 5th century in the reign of Honorius. This is a period, once again, where there is considerable threats on the frontiers. So in Honorius's reign, the walls were essentially doubled in height to 15 metres, the towers to 23 metres, And there are crosses, Christian crosses, found in the brickwork as well here, the idea that they're being protected by God in their defence of the city. Nice. And there's an inscription from the Porta Maggiore, which is in the northeast of the city, which says that when Honorius and his brother Arcadius were emperors, Honorius ruled in the west and Arcadius in the east, that at the prompting of the Magister Militum, so the chief general, Stilicho, who was like Honorius's guardian because he came to power as a youth, that the walls, the gates and the towers were strengthened again and the Senate erected statues in honour of Arcadius and Honorius on account of the strengthening of the walls. Indeed, the walls you know, withstood sieges by the Goths under, under their leader Alaric but they failed to withstand the third attack in August of 410 when they were allegedly betrayed from within. You're inferring yes. somebody opening a side door. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so this is the famous Gothic sack of Rome, you know, the first one to have happened since the, the Gauls in 390 BC, mm. um, which lived long in memory. Okay, so the walls have loomed large over Rome for more than a 1,000 years at this mm. point. And there's a long history that Rome has of papal history and, mm. and lots of interesting stuff going on between. So what role 
do the walls play in the city in that time? I mean, I know a lot of monuments, for example, will get caught up in the fortification rush. Mm. You know, structures like the Colosseum becomes fortified. That's uh, right. It's very easy to fortify a wall, I imagine. Yes, yes. So, I mean, certainly in, in subsequent generations, you know, after the emperors are gone, you know, Theodoric, the Ostrogothic king of Italy, we know from brick stamps that bear his name on it, that he refortified the wall. And then in the 6th century, during the Gothic Wars between Justinian's general and the gothic king uh, viticus there are sieges that last up to a year during this period and both sides are strengthening and refitting uh, the walls so procopius who is a sixth century byzantine historian attributes rebuilding or strengthening to various sides so totilla the gothic king is attributed with the section around hadrian's mausoleum which lies on the other side of the Tiber from the Campus Martius. Mm. And, of course, this is now Castel San Angelo, which you know, had a really important role in the, uh, the papal fortifications. Yeah, it was yeah. connected to the Vatican by a colonnade. And so, you know, what was once Hadrian's mausoleum uh, became for centuries... Um, a papal military fortress. Once they assume responsibility for all aspects of the city's administration, including the feeding of the populace, we find in a work called the Liber Pontificalis, which is essentially the Book of Popes and and what they did. For example, in the 8th century, the Pope Hadrian I outlaid £100 of gold to repair the walls, and we're told, you know, he's repairing towers that have collapsed. So it was really important, you know, over the centuries to the defence of the city of Rome and because of the investment of the papal government, that's why they're in such good condition today. Yeah, yeah. I I think that the longer that you get through history after the Roman Empire, the more important the concept of a wall becomes to a city. Yes, and yes. Um, definitely for this one, it's just interesting that Rome was, you know, conceived and existed for so long without a functioning wall for defence. That's right. You know, yeah. in the time of you know Hadrian or Antoninus Pius, it would be inconceivable that Rome would actually need a wall. You know, in the grand scheme of history, that period is actually a blip. It's an outlier. You know, for a lot of its life, Rome has needed defensible city walls. So. Rome doesn't need it now or for now. Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah. So what role does it play in the city now? Is it just part of the imperial architecture of the city? And does it loom large over the city now? Yeah, no, it's an integral part of the, the fabric of the city, you know. Most everywhere you go, you know, you pass in and out of the walls. If you're taking a taxi from uh, Fiumicino in, into the city, you'll probably pass in through one of the gates. Metro station, you'll come out in front of the northern walls on, on the Flaminia. If you're heading down to the Via Appia, You'll pass um, the uh, Pyramid of Gaius Cestius, you know, which, which is still in the walls. It's just an integral part of the city's fabric. And it's it's really fun to walk around and trace the root of the walls and to see what structures it takes in, to see, you know, the different styles of brickwork and masonry that attest to being built up over the years. And if you go to the Museum of the Walls, Porta San Sebastiano, you know, you can see plaster casts of motifs found the brickwork, building marks, made by the workmen and you can walk a bit along the uh, the course of the walls as well there so that, that's quite fun to and do that's, that's the only spot where you can do that is yes it? that's the only spot to my knowledge that you actually yeah. can go up onto the walls and you know, have a look around for yourself yeah yeah have you done that i have yes yes i've been there i also one day i walked 
back from the Via Appia and then joined the Aurelian Walls. And then I walked along the eastern circuit of the walls, um, yeah. past the Lateran, the Amphitheatrum Castrense, all the way up to Porta Maggiore, where the aqueducts uh, joined the walls. You can see the inscription of Honorius and Arcadius. And then when my feet were too tired, so I got the tram back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think to really get to know Rome, you have to walk everywhere. And that's what I really love to do. Well, okay. Now, pitching you here, a five-hour-long When in Rome podcast. <laughs> of us walking around the walls. Uh, that would be great. <laughs> Might be something to do one day. Yes. We'll need good shoes. That was Associate Professor Kaylin Davenport, head of the Centre for Classical Studies at the Australian National University, and you have been listening to When in Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in any readily available podcasting platform. Please leave a review. They're very appreciated. You can like When in Rome on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow both myself and Kaylin on Twitter. Kaylin is at Dr. C. Davenport. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. When in Rome is a crowdfunded podcast, so I'd like to give a sincere thanks to those who have supported. Our imperator for this episode is John Chalk and the Triumvirs for Season 7, Ken Acousti, Dean Pavitt and Lorenzo Morasco. Ave to you. A special shout out to Ollie Julian, the composer of the music that you're listening to in this podcast. It's the theme music to the ITV show Plebs from Rise Comedy. That's it today for When in Rome, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening.